0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to the arts, sports, and everything in between, and your stories, too. And this one is a special one. More than a half a century after it hit theaters, Mary Poppins is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's
1: Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks, as filmmaker Walt Disney who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke.
2: I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together, Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy.
1: Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson.
3: I remember him being interviewed for it, and he said that his daughter, Diane, had read the books... And she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P. L. Travers' Mary Poppins was published in 1934
4: in London, but it wasn't till about four years afterwards in 1938 that Walt Disney went after the rights.
5: Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood. But Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again.
4: Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him. But she wouldn't.
5: Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals.
4: And these, these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes. And this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmosphere. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be
1: impolite to anybody.
6: You brought your references, I presume? May I see them?
1: Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley.
4: No, 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 no. No, no, don't make it like that.
3: There were so many hesitations in, in her acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving she said not a change of heart because he's always been sweet but worried with the cares of life I think she had 30 days to consider on the 30th day she relented but she had to be the consultant
5: it seems unbelievable after all that had gone on but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs Travers agrees on
3: certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, uh, Mary Martin, and we were thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But uh, it wasn't until one evening when The Ed Sullivan Show had an excerpt from Camelot, and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton saying, what do the simple folk do? And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day, we walked into DeGrati's office, and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just, wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt.
1: Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews.
6: P.L. Travers had approval pretty much of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories.
1: I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and, and approved
4: of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance.
2: Room in for everyone, gather around. The constable is responsible. Now,
5: how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about. And he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert.
2: i put me finger on what lies in store. But I feel what's to happen all happened before. i had only been in one movie myself, so I was as about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional she had a camera personality she knew where the camera was she knew where the lights were as if she had done it all her life she was thoroughly professional from the beginning
3: of all the wonderful things that walt was coming up with for this movie one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song jolly holiday and we were playing it for the first time for walt and don degrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing and there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out and walt said hold it and he said
2: waiters have always reminded me of penguins (laughs) so they made them penguins. that would have never occurred to any human except walt disney
3: he had this wonderful whimsical way about him Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created.
0: When Mary
2: hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like... It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a massive job I was.
3: Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture.
2: I did a glorious die Right as I'm in my. I feel like
0: And I when we come die. back, we'll continue the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American when Stories.
2: The grass so green Or a bluer sky Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary, Mary makes your heart so light. Chim, chiminy,
3: chim, chiminy, chim 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 sweet is as lucky as lucky can be.
7: When he
1: hands with you. Jim,
0: this Jim, is Our American Jim, Jim, Stories, and we continue Jim, Jim, with the story of Mary Poppins.
1: Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks.
6: I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still. And he succeeded.
4: Ellen, we had the most glorious meeting.
3: When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glennis Johns. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect.
4: Gracious Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be close enough as it is to come home and find the children missing.
1: Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt,
3: it
4: might give me an incentive if I could have my own little
3: number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So she says... All right, all right. I'll have to hear it. And if, if, I, if I like it, then I might I might consider doing the part. So she left. Walt said, get on this thing. You've got to write something for her. But we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song.
4: By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of sister suffragette we're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes though we adore men individually we agree that as a group they're rather stupid
3: Glynis was interested then
4: when i think now of how nearly I didn't do it. It's amazing, because I'm so proud to be part of it.
2: It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where, at the end of each day, I walk away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman...
3: We asked Walt if we could have a half an hour of his time. And uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with. And uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that Bird Woman song again.
1: Come feed the little bird, show them you
4: care.
3: It was about charity.
4: Yeah, about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for but that they could
2: use, love.
4: Please, maybe feed the birds?
2: Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. Feed
4: the birds, toppin' a bag.
3: Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over 5 30, 6 o'clock. We'd come over to his office and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him.
8: Feed the birds, toppin' a big.
3: And he'd, yep, that's what it's all about. Have a good weekend, boys, and then he'd send us home.
1: He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke
3: and Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the Bird Woman. Her name was Jane. Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part, if she'll do it. She's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt. Was
1: that is, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it
3: was. And, mm-hmm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the sound stage oh. to, to see her. She was so oh. thrilled and happy, she cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that. Tuppence. Tuppence of a bag.
4: It's super califragilistic, expi
3: The musical style was really boiled beef and carrot. It's boiled beef and carrot, an old English uh, folk song. Super
4: fragilistic
3: expi and, and any old iron, any old iron. And under the little underline.
2: Under little,
3: underline. Under little underline. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that and yet be original and, and totally our own.
2: When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world.
5: Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard.
3: They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we
2: haven't retired yet i'm so nervous i'm about to die such an exciting night
6: this is the night of all
2: the red carpet big we had the big tent yeah, out yeah
6: yeah and we had a big garden party built out on the, on under the, the rock, back yes the back.
2: and the reaction was wonderful <laughs> what an ovation i got at the end
3: the reviews were Fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th- thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success. Which, I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world.
6: For the best
8: actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are...
5: At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady.
4: And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh
1: brought it up, but we suddenly realised that if if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins.
3: The winner
2: is Julie Andrews oh, Mary Poppins. Thank you.
4: thank you very much for this lovely honour. It's a wonderful memento of a very very happy time and
1: i took an enormous gulp and said
4: finally my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place mr jack warner
1: everybody
3: screamed it was like a thunderous scream and everyone's laughing including mr warner so i was home and safe and that was her little sweet revenge <laughs> it was great congratulations
1: thank you very much
3: when
5: a few weeks later the academy award nominations were announced mary poppins received an amazing 13 nomination
1: among the nominations include best picture director actress screenplay cinematography art direction visual effects original song and score
2: there probably are not words to describe your emotion.
4: now 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 gentlemen please on the contrary there's a very good word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious
2: the magic of it had escaped me pounding it out every day when it was all put together there was it there was something else besides what we put into it i don't know what serendipity came along but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected
4: and it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. A proper kite needs a proper tail, don't you think?
2: It was such a contribution to family entertainment, and I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie as far as I'm concerned.
3: I had the pleasure, the honor really of, of being asked to to, uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, they have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and I said, I'm now going to play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played, Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt, statue like that, I said, happy birthday, Walt, and I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again, into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks.
1: I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job as always, Greg. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter. Just give us your email address and we'll give you five of our best stories each week, every week. And thanks to the folks at MyPillow.com for providing sponsorship and support to this show. And go to MyPillow.com and get their pillows. My wife and I use them. And my goodness, sleep's been better ever since. Just go to MyPillow.com. And type in stories. Give it a shot. I promise you, you'll sleep better. It's helped me. It's helped my bride. And my goodness, as we go out, we'll be listening to the great Julie Andrews singing the story of Mary Poppins. Here are our American stories.
1: Toppins, toppins, toppins.
0: This is Our American Stories, and today we bring you a story our field correspondent, Faith, picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece.
8: Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen... She's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple stage competition, most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession, well, it began with running.
7: Yeah, I was always very hyperactive. You know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was, I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, After a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I I got back into it. And then um, I started... I think really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago, I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met and we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years. And then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, oh, it's just about time to settle down and said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. (laughs) We had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together. And then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth. But, you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then... We got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later, we had our first, and then we had another one, and then we had another one, and we just kept having them, so, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing, of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre, (laughs) so it's really funny, you know, like, stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area, and I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit, so, Yeah, and we always got along. We both liked classical music, and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So, you know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down. and got married.
8: So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs. Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started.
7: I started realizing that a lot of my friends... You know, their knees started going and they started complaining, and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping. And this was about eight or nine years ago. And we saw this thing called I had never seen a triathlon. And I couldn't believe it. I, I saw it and I said, I'm going to do that. And I, I was talking to all the people. Well, what comes first? And why does it in that order? And I was just kept, I was fascinated. And so um, I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but you know, real, uh, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and, and then, you know, the run was fine. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something, I just kept, I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU, And they were starting a triathlon club and so I started working out with them and of course and then I had to get a better bike and it just took over. (laughs) And so uh, I wasn't retired yet, but school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing I don't really have time to go to work, I have too many workouts and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought,
8: okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones.
7: I started doing the little sprint triathlons, those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive
8: A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the World Championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. Does this woman take any rest days?
7: I really listen to my body, and I can tell. Like I did a a century, uh, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday. And it was very hilly and solving. And um, I could tell. So I was supposed to, in my brain... I was going to run on Sunday and I didn't and on Monday I have two groups that I swim with two different ones one in the morning at 6 and one at um, 7 o'clock at night and I was supposed to run in the middle of the day and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get, get back. The days that I take off every once in a while, you know, life happens. Somebody gets sick or I get sick or that might be a day that I, that I take off, but I don't work it into my schedule. I either, there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but, um, Sometimes, like um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't. I probably won't do anything else except run.
0: And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder, thirty-mile bike ride—not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. is our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation.
7: So you work out like two or three times a day sometimes? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. You don't let yourself? Well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning and then I meet my friend afterwards at 7.30 at the park and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... um, (laughs) I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights I have track, and then Thursday morning I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day.
8: Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two few three times a day... I like
7: constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am and i really try i really try to catch it before i get starving or else i'll eat something you know like carl's jr or something i try to always you know to have stuff i pretty much eat anything and most of my friends are real you know vegan maniac people you know some people eat only raw foods and some you know they have all kinds of these crazy things but i don't do any of that because it's not like i'm training for the olympics or something i eat a lot but for when i'm working if i'm coming up on a race a couple days before i start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to you don't want a lot of that of the stuff in your system you know you want it to kind of get through and so i'll eat more like you know white rice and i won't eat any fresh vegetables I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that. and especially the night before. and then in the morning I have you know, I have the banana and oatmeal and I usually eat on the way to the race and you know, there's just certain things that you do.
8: For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is.
7: The last really stupid thing I did was um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year. And the wait to get into the water was so long. And I had a water bottle with me because sometimes, you know, you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything and you're in there for a long time. So I was so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line. And then I was swimming but you can't, unless you stop and relax. You can't be, <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me, and um, and it, I just I I just died. So you know, eventually I got out and it was okay. But um, because you was, had to be, yeah, it was because you can't really you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so (laughs) that was really awful. That was the worst thing.
8: Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame.
7: It's funny because even my swim coach would say, he'll point to me and say, "See though, she's a real athlete." You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing, but you know, I really don't think about it, and I don't really compare myself. And the and I do know other people who are you know my age and much faster, but I do know there's not very many of them. You know and there aren't and the older I get you know like I'm going into this 70 to 74 that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now a lot of times like this weekend I'm doing a try, and I'm the only person in my age category so it's like kind of relaxing it's like all right this is great but you know I still want to do well yeah I don't know I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger I just enjoy I enjoy that I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids people my kids age you know that that kind of thing and that's who I that's who I'm with I really enjoy it. and I think I think I think they're I'm like them but when they're looking at me they're looking at their grandmother <laughs> yeah it, it it's pretty funny but I just enjoy that and the older people that do I do work out with I mean a lot of them are in their 60s you know there are some we're all kind of the same, you know, we all enjoy being with all ages and, and, um, you know, we're pretty much, you know, we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are very, very competitive and, you know, it's like killer and, you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us have been very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something, you know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of, out of the blue. You know, you've done something for several years. Or it's a personality type. I think it's a, per, a lot of it's personality. When I'm out there, it's like, you know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old. <laughs> Especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend, when we did this century and solving, it was hilly it wasn't horrible there were so many guys carrying or just walking their bikes up these hills and i mean i was in my you know my easiest gear but i'm like mm, you know good morning good morning and i'm still going in there i'm passing them up and all this but what they do guys they power through at the beginning not realizing you can't do that when you're running you know riding a 100 miles
8: <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by Well they're stupid. Yourself.
7: Yeah, yeah. They're stupid. Yeah. And a lot of them are heavy. Some you can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong, especially in the swim, oh, my gosh. Huge people that are so fast in the water. But bike on a hill when you're heavy, you gotta work a lot harder and then the run too, so
8: But of course not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen, though, she's a pretty intense person and it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia, but she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly, but of course she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she's able to do.
7: I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games, so I can do that, but I would just want to have Nice people, active people, not not real old people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because I I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said, um, that I work out, my training partner said, that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group groups and I have my triathlon groups. And I have my swim groups and I have my running groups. And there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to hang out with and stuff.
8: Yeah, and you're fortunate because, like, to have your body in such good condition that it's not you know breaking down on you yeah
7: and you know what if it does break down i'm ready i mean you know (laughs) i can do i can do other things i mean you know if i broke my leg you know i've had to come back from injuries and stuff so i don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world i would i would just do something else but you know i enjoy that that's why i feel fortunate now so this is just something you like doing for now yeah
0: And what a great piece. Thanks so much for that, Faith. And Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete, I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, I have a hard time being around people my own age. Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you, Kathleen. You'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories. See This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono introducing The Streets With No Name. And he's been doing this a lot in his life now. Singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour. And it's not just the story of a song, it's the story of a man. John Newton's story, the writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century... Under very difficult conditions, his father was a seaman out in the sea, making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton and his early life, and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story.
6: It started with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who, in his right mind, would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month. That's pound 20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort, on Saturday the 25th of February, 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, First Lieutenant Thomas Ruffin, delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich, anchored just off Sheerness in Kent, eight impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was always a prime target of the press gangs, and his bandy legs, his Bawdy language and his rolling gait was a giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth rate man of war, 976 tons, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet, and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence, and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain, and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman.
0: Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope. Specifically with the love of his life, Polly, he made sure to write her as often as he could.
6: On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly... This is the first letter we have from Newton's pen and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th century love letter which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16, two days before the letter was written.
0: John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom.
6: John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexicographer, uh, said of Wapping that one day one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them.
0: He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In
6: 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. As soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly, a love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton author, writer of Amazing Grace, and will capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America, and of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. stories, and we continue with the story of a song, and of course the story of a man, the song Amazing Grace, the man John Newton who wrote it. Newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events. Indeed, all the evil that he experienced ultimately became entrenched in his heart.
6: But from now on, his life became a tangled web of romance, impetuous action and unbelief. John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents. And finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into his majesty's navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, if there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy. So that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel. Venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing. And the person of my ever blessed and gracious redeemer as an imposter in all this time. I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it or, if that failed, scorned him in my heart. Never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them. Never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. For my practice was as vile and abominable as my principle's so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only accepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others.
0: This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary. And he tried to reach her, but to no avail.
6: The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John. And shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons, and Captain Carteret ordered what was known then as a red checked shirt on the grating. 25 to 30 lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterised with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water or hot tar. And for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly stored away in her hold was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves... The ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton, and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers. And it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade. And thus began John Newton's
0: deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself
6: John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon, and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, the Greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. But of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, oh no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying lashed to the wheel or working the pumps, gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, On that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off-island in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748.
0: John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him.
6: No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near fatal fever brought him to his senses, and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ.
0: And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with the story of John Newton and the story of a song, Amazing Grace. And we're listening, by the way, to Brian Edwards, the author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. God had brought Newton to his breaking point yet again, and finally his life began to fall in place. But he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade.
6: On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of Argyle, 100 tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place, the captain always had, uh, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new, new lands of America and uh, the home country, disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice.
0: There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools, and rats ate at the sails and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once.
6: He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered, he never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board. He
0: changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool.
6: Liverpool was a very hard city hard and godless but it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches he nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his uh, second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June 1764 he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St Peter's and St Paul's. And for 16 years he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often we are told wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton.
0: What was his ministry like as a pastor?
6: He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is, but if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say. Newton
0: was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story and it caused quite a sensation.
6: The first year at Olney saw the publication, 1764, of his story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship.
0: What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns. But he did this in a very creative and purposeful way.
6: Now for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their their lace bobbins. And he realized that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon, they learned the hymn, they knew what the sermon was all about. Eventually he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to to sing it for the first time. He began in earnest at the close of 1772 and within six years he had written and expounded over 300 hymns. Now many of his hymns were topical. And that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Olney, winter, spring, summer harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Olney, the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage.
0: He was a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story of John Newton's life.
6: His famous hymn "Amazing Grace" was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year, from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, where King David reviews his, the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself. And John Newton, in this hymn, as you well know, reviewed his own life.
0: And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the song, the verses, came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from, and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song, get here from Great Britain? Well, that story's chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the southern compilers. In other words, he had searched. He couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church we baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like amazing grace how sweet the sound but when those holiness people tore into i'm so glad that jesus lifted me up they came up with a real jubilation let's take a listen to mahalia jackson's version
4: oh me.
1: Ah
0: And then it was the Folkies who really popularized the song, said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins, again another Folky. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and, in fact, flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist Church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins' version.
8: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
0: Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country. The non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many, but let's take a listen to how Al Green... Sets things up,
3: and just a little bit of this, one verse. I may think Sing
2: with me,
0: and from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. Back to the more urban and African American traditions, here's Ray Charles.
3: How
2: sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
6: I want to
4: but now. Was blind, but now was
7: she.
0: John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, "...perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression." as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story.
2: Amazing Grace,
4: how sweet the sound was grace that taught my
7: heart
4: to fear and grace my fear